Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. Happy to be with you today. In honor of the upcoming Earth Day celebrations, I wanted to pay homage to one of our planet's most abundant, healthy, regenerative, renewable, and sustainable resources. You guessed it, cannabis. Prior to Prohibition, wild cannabis grew in many regions in the United States. It grows rapidly in adverse climate conditions and resists most pests that can destroy other crops, so it can thrive without many chemical pesticides, herbicides, or fertilizers when grown outdoors where it can breathe in natural sunlight. Hemp, which is marijuana's non-psychotropic cousin, can be used to make nearly anything that is now made with fossil fuels such as motor oil, fuel, petrochemicals, synthetic textiles, plastic, and paper. Rather than emitting carbon into the atmosphere, it's actually carbon negative. Composites made of, of cannabis are actually stronger and more durable and it has premium value as a food source and medicine. Unfortunately, growing cannabis where nature intended is not yet possible in most states due to antiquated federal laws. Most states where growing marijuana is now legal, they require that the cultivation is done indoors under lights that produce a lot of heat and evaporative moisture. This opens the door to a host of issues with things like mold, fungus, and pests that would not likely proliferate outdoors. Cultivators are then forced to deal with these issues by applying pesticides, fungicides, and other toxic chemicals. So when it comes to growing marijuana for medicinal purposes, the solution becomes a dangerous health issue. Some believe that if cannabis can be the key to a carbon-neutral future, and others believe that it's vital to reversing trends in climate change. But of course, it's really set to transform medicine and growing it is the topic of today's show and I'm so excited to introduce our guest but first Dr. Brian Donner has our medical marijuana minute what do you have for us today Dr. Donner thank you Snowden I believe the discovery of the endocannabinoid system and understanding its operation and utility could turn out to be one of the most important medical revelations of modern-day medicine it amazes me that most nursing colleges and medical schools still offer little to no coursework and baseline education on the subject. I would personally like to invite patients and medical practitioners to join me at the World Medical Cannabis Conference and Expo, which will be held in Pittsburgh, PA on April 21st and 22nd, during which time attendees can participate in a medical cannabis education course and have the opportunity to earn continuing medical education credit. For more information about this, please visit CompassionateCertificationCenters.com. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for The Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you, Dr. Donner. We'll hear from you again next week. So let's get started. Amy Anderley, a founding board member of the Organic Cannabis Association, serves on the city of Denver's Cannabis Sustainability Work Group and, along with her husband, is co-owner of Legal Services, a Denver-based clean cannabis cultivation and dispensary. She is committed to setting a new sustainability standard for the industry. 
from eco-friendly facility development to a pesticide-free final product. She is leading the charge on making cannabis industry as green as possible, and not with, only within her own business, but also for the industry as a whole. So you advocate for the adoption of sustainable practices across the board. Is that right, Amy? It is, and thank you for that great introduction. Oh, you're certainly welcome. Thank you so much for being here. You know, it, I, I'm amazed that um, more people don't really understand just how sustainable cannabis as an entire plant species can be. And I mean, so many people have acknowledged this over the years, but it just never really got the attention that it deserves. And um, one thing that I wanted to just read, which was a quote years ago by Alan Block, who's a uh, reporter, editor for the OC Register in California. He said, since 1937, about half of the world's forests have been cut down to make paper. And if hemp had not been outlawed, most of those would still be standing and oxygenating the planet. So tell me from your perspective, where you think the industry needs to go in order to embrace the sustainability factor of cannabis? You know, so it's a good question. I think um, I think we need to just keep moving forward. Something that I have tried to point out um, over the past recent days, I've been speaking a little bit more about sustainability, given that Earth Day is around the corner. And, you know, we have come so far in such a short amount of time as an industry. If you look back, it was only 2009 when a lot of these grows here in the state of Colorado, at the time they were medical, started coming online, coming out of the shadows, being able to operate and function legally. And so from 2009 until 2017, what we've been able to do in terms of utilizing innovation and really working to do as much um, research regarding sustainability is, is pretty monumental. You know, people need to remember that sustainable tactics when it comes to growing cannabis, particularly growing cannabis indoors, they ultimately save the business on our on our bottom line. So you're talking about energy bills that are excessive and very high. Um, and then to that, in your intro, you pointed out the, um, the challenges that come with growing indoors. So you've got the integrated pest management and when you're changing the humidity of these environments. And so we have these comprehensive HVAC systems that are helping to purify the air and clean the air and help prevent pests. But at the same time, these new high-tech HVAC systems are also odor mitigators and they are um, energy efficient and incredibly sustainable because, you know, we're always upgrading. I can't remember the last time in my business we went more than 12 months without upgrading a major system, whether it be water, energy, waste, HVAC. So I think that, you know, I don't want the industry to get a bad reputation for being energy hogs when we are, are being incredibly proactive as compared to other ag industries who've been around for hundreds of years, um, considering the time frame with which we've been operating. Right. You know, uh, sustainability, in our sense, we want to be seen as a, as a welcomed industry, um, as sustainable in all senses of the word. And so to that means normalizing and we don't want to be seen as weighing heavily on an energy grid. Um, you know, are there, are there opportunities for industry to be doing better? Yes, there are. And I, and I think that we can touch on those, but overall, I think it is worth acknowledging how fast we've come forward. Right. You know, I, I think we, as an industry, couldn't help but go very rapidly because, you know, as more and more people become aware of the benefits of cannabis, whether it be industrial hemp or medicinal hemp and marijuana, you know, the demand is going up exponentially. I mean, you just look at um, the awareness, you know, someone becomes aware of the benefits and suddenly, you know, that's a new consumer. So... Mm -hmm. So it has to, I would imagine, you know, as, as the word has spread over the last few years, especially since um, more and more people have free access, not free as in cost-free, but free access in, a, in terms of 
um, it's not illegal in in several states now to yeah. have access to it. So people are more willing to go and try it rather than, you know, suffer the indignity of going to their doctors to ask for certification, which some yeah. are afraid to do. But it, it's interesting. And I think that you're right. It, it has to continue um, growing in that positive light. Do you, do you advocate for growing outdoors? Like if it were legal, would you as a grower pr prefer to grow product outside? Oh gosh, uh, Snowden, it took us so long to hone in um, and really get down to a science, our, our indoor cultivation facility, that I think it's something we would certainly vet and we would look at, uh, look at the, the benefits or the cost-benefit analysis and, and labor. But, you know, I don't, I don't want to say no to anything, but right now we're, we're just feeling like we've gotten our arms and we're dialed in um, indoors. I know as the Cannabis Sustainability work group. Um, that we're working on with the city of Denver, you know, people ask us that question as well. well. What about this as it relates to greenhouses or outdoor cultivation? And and I think what we're, we're just sort of biting off one chunk at a time and saying, let's look at these indoor facilities. And then, you know, absolutely, if there are ways, uh, best practices that we can incorporate um, from an outdoor grow or a greenhouse into a warehouse and or vice versa, we will do that. But I think it's something our business looks at, but... Um, you know, we're, we'll have to evaluate that when the time comes. Yeah, and because so many people really have no idea what goes into actually growing medicinal marijuana, explain to me, like, some of the processes that, that you go through in setting it up or, or just on a daily basis to maintain your crops indoors. Right. Yeah, so, you know, we set up our facility based on how we wanted to cultivate. And we chose to cultivate, and, and everybody, you know, there's conventional and there's organic when you go into almost any grocery store these days. And we wanted to take the slant of, a, you know, sort of a race to the top. We use organic best practice standards. So to that, you know, we've set up our facility a little bit differently in that we have smaller flowering rooms. We have a, um, an area for um, vegetation, for vegging the plants, and then obviously for clones and, and for the mothers so that we can um, continue to... Um, produce the amount of strains that we have in-house. Uh, you know, we've set up our facility such that, um, again, I, I spoke with that high-tech HVAC system. Ours is a Remy Halo HVAC system. That's the same kind of air purification system they would have in a hospital as far as cleaning the air as it goes through the system because for us, that's a huge part of integrated pest management. And when you're trying to grow with organic best practice and you're trying to deliver a clean cannabis or pesticide-free product, uh, end product, you, you need to make sure that your integrated pest management covers as much of, uh, of that as possible without relying on pesticides. So part of that is how clean is the air? Because when you have humidity problems or um, your dehumidification um, fails or your, your ventilation fails, that really creates an environment for molds and funguses. So you have to be very proactive about that. So we've invested a lot there. We have looked at lighting. No, I think that there's different lighting for flowering rooms versus a, um, a bedroom. We do use uh, LED lighting when we find it to be um, a benefit to the plan. And so I would say about, um, you know, a little under half the lights, maybe about half the lights in our facility are LED lights. Um, so we are always evaluating and testing new lights, though. We kind of uh, sort of uh, cordon off a, a small area of our grow so that we can do this R&D and we can see how does a plant perform under that? Because ultimately, you're also looking at your own production. Um, you don't want that to, you don't want to sacrifice quality, right? Right. Um, and then, you know, we spend a lot, a lot of time on labor hours and, and labor. We have an incredibly um, qualified staff, um, many of whom hold uh, environmental science degrees and who've worked with and in organic um, agriculture. And... So our staff is really hands-on with the plant. Um, we do some hand watering, and that allows them to get face-to-face -face with the plant and really identify any, um, you know, the health and assess the health of the plant. Um, so I would say, you know, we really, our staff does more cleaning than anyone would imagine. There's this idea that the uh, cannabis industry is this really, you know, some people might romanticize the idea of growing pot for a living, and uh, our team cleans and works harder than um, nearly anyone I've seen, and I come from a food and beverage background, so 
that's, you know, that's high praise. Um, and, you know, above that, I would say it's about harvesting and how are you harvesting and, and you choose to do that. You know, for us, I think that uh, the perpetual harvest is not that appealing because you are going to further risk having some issues with your plants from a, a pest and disease control side. So, you know, does that create sustainability for our, for our flower rooms? Perhaps, you know, we're using our rooms very efficiently. Um, although some might question that the amount of space we have between our plants, you know, um, is, is generous. But we think that that, again, it goes to the quality of the airflow. And so, you know, setting our grow up to be a clean cannabis facility um, in and of itself created a sustainable cannabis growing facility because we are looking at all of those other opportunities we have, whether it be our environmental resources. And you know, something I haven't even touched on is also waste. You know, we do not want waste around our plant products. We want to um, compost that wa that waste whenever we can. And, and we facilitated those relationships for um, recycling and for composting um, as much as we're able to. I would I think, think that com yeah, go ahead. composting, it seems like composting and using that on other uh, uh, crops like outdoor farming um, might be a really good idea because of the way it might restore some nutrients into soil. A hundred percent. You feel the same way that many of the farmers we work with feel. We have farmers, um, we have local um, smaller sustainable farms that pick up our soil with media and will compost and recycle that. We use, um, you know, very healthy, safe nutrients. And so because of our limited use of pesticides and those that we do use are OMRI rated, I think that they feel very comfortable incorporating that into the composting in their um, agricultural and, and food yeah, and I've also heard that, that composted, well, really um, just about any composted vegetable, but I would imagine especially cannabis um, can be brewed into, into like a sun tea to create uh, fungicide, herbicide, um, and uh, pesticides as, an, yeah. as like a natural yeah. substance. Do you ever use that? So we have in the past. I don't know that to, as of today. It might also be the seasonally, mm -hmm. um, just where our compost is in terms of its readiness. But there are teas. They are sold, um, you know, uh, from wholesalers as well as people making them themselves, where they brew natural teas and then they act as both a nutrient and a for pe plant pest health or, or pest prevention. I should say. Right. Right. And let me ask you this because I know that in order to declare that. Um, a food substance was grown organically. It has to go through all sorts of red tape with the FDA. And this is something I just don't know. Um, when, when you're talking about organic uh, farming of cannabis, obviously the DEA is not really 100% on board with the whole concept of it to begin with. How do you... It, it, is there any, any kind of legal um, hoops you have to jump through in order to call your grow organic? Yeah, that's a really good question and you're 100% correct. We, if you've heard me use the term repeatedly in this conversation, clean cannabis, it's because I can't, per federal regulation, call my product organic. If there are any consumers out there and their dispensary is telling them that this product is organic, there really is no such thing at this time because it's, it's Part, much in part due to my work that I, I, I do board service with Organic Cannabis Association. You know, we are trying to create for consumers a way for them to recognize that differentiation. And right now, there is no differentiation. Other than trusting your dispensary, there's no way that a consumer can substantiate that the claims that that dispensary make are true and that it is meeting that standard. And, you know, USDA standard is for organic certification of plants and, um, you know, vegetables, items that we eat. Um, and so, you know, cannabis is so challenging because it crosses both barriers of we, it is smoked, it is combusted, it is ingested as a food, it is used topically. It crosses all of these different, um, you know, avenues of, of ingestion and intake. 
Um, so I'm very careful um, in our marketing materials to, you know, I, I sort of skirt it. I, I say it, I allude to it, I talk about our organic best practice, but I try to be honest in that I don't have it on my sign because we can't. Um, and I don't, I try not to make that claim in our dispensary. We talk about clean cannabis and, you know, that's really delivered pesticide free. That is, speaks to how it was cultivated, the ethics under which that plant was cultivated from, uh, you know, um, ethically with how, how are our workers in the back and what, what pesticides are we expecting them to use and the conditions that they work in to our sustainability and how we are responsible. And, um, you know, we are certifiably green per the city of Denver, but they're only certifying our retail establishment, not the product inside our dispensary. Right. And, and that's so across the board in Colorado, isn't it? Not just Denver. No. Yeah. And it's just this constant clarification that we're forced to make because there isn't an option for us to make that distinction. Right. Right. I imagine that the FDA um, will ultimately catch up um, and, and start regulating cannabis uh, cultivation the way that it does agricultural cultivation. You know, the, the uh, FDA and the USDA probably as well. I mean, do they ever get involved? Uh, no, yeah. they do not. USDA does not get involved. The EPA tries to leave that to the local um, Department of Ags, and right. they do not involve themselves. I think um, they're educated to some of what is going on. Um, I think that more than just you and I, there are a lot of people out there, including people within the government, that would like more research done and to open this up. But I think that there's also the other end of that spectrum. So we have to be very positive that this industry is going to continue with its progress as it has for the past few years and, and not backslide uh, due to, you know, changes in administration. Yeah, yeah. Well, one would hope anyway. <laughs> one would hope. <laughs> yeah. So um, do you use hydroponic agriculture techniques? Not. No. What's, what would be the difference for, for someone, let's say, because, um, I mean, we hear a lot about um, hydroponic cannabis grows. What do you think is really the difference between that and growing in traditional soil settings? I am not an expert and would not even begin to know how to flush that question out and, and not... Be, be the object of ridicule to, to people who are experts in those fields. You know, I think um, there is room for hydroponics. There is room. We use a soilless media, um, a peat and cocoa core mix at legal. Uh, but, you know, I really can't speak to the different grow methods. And this is a great opportunity to me, for me to point out that, you know, as owners, um, we have always employed experts in our grow, not experts in growing cannabis in their basements, but experts in agriculture, experts in organic farming, um, experts in agricultural um, you know, finance and efficiency. Um, we've always sought out uh, directors of cultivation and, and cultivation leads that hold those degrees, because if there's anything we've learned, it's, it's hire the right people and rely on uh, people who know more about you in that field. So yeah. um, I would have to sort of hand that question off to somebody who worked directly with hydroponics. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that's, um, it's awesome that you're doing that because I know that, you know, there have been some uh, people who have transitioned from the underground uh, growing, if you will, into the light uh, in legal cultivation. And, you know, I, I think that there's really, nothing more important, especially when you're dealing with growing medicine for people, than to employ people who have been formally educated in certain techniques and really know the distinction between good practices and, and not so good practices that could potentially be harmful to people. Yeah, I would agree. I think from a sustainability standpoint and from a, a health, you know, standpoint that when it is a lot easier for us to teach cannabis, the plant, to a scientist or to someone who has an agricultural degree than it is to teach science and agriculture to someone who understands a cannabis plant. I, I just don't think they, they 
uh, you know, are reciprocated as easily in both directions. So, yes, experts, absolutely. Yeah, no, a lot of time and money. Yeah, oh, I, I can imagine it would. I, yeah, it would definitely pay off, I would think. So, um, explain a little bit about the strains and how easily the cannabis plant can mutate from one strain to another, because I think a lot of people don't really understand what all of these different strains, um, how, how they come to be. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about genetically modifying plants, and I think that splitting strains and mutating them into other strains that have different uh, potency ranges of the cannabinoids that are in those plants is quite different than genetically modifying to accept um, Roundup, for example, uh, pesticides and herbicides and that sort of thing. Can you explain the, what, what that process might look like for someone who might not know? We grow in-house about 35 different strains. Um, they all have a very distinct cannabinoid profile. That means it goes further than just THC potency, right? Then they also have CBD, CBN, THCV, THC, and, and so those profiles look very differently, um, whether they're a sativa and indica or a hybrid as well. Um, on top of that, they have terpenes, and you hear a lot about the terpene profile and, and the full entourage effect of the terpenes and how they interact with the cannabinoids and then how that affects the THC and your high, and each strain is going to create a different high for you. We really try to preserve the integrity of these strains. Um, we don't want them to mutate. Uh, you know, when strains go, um, you know, hermaphrodite or they start to change, um, that's usually due to a stress in the growing environment. And so we do everything we can to, to mitigate, mitigate that. We don't want them to change. Um, and we want to preserve the integrity of that strain's genetic profile um, you know, and be able to reproduce that by cloning the mother and, um, and continuing to have that, that flowering cycle. Um, but, you know, as far as bringing in new strains, we don't, we do it and it's a challenge because you never know, um, you know, if it's, if it's your popping seeds, are they female or male? And so it happens and we probably bring on a couple of strains per year. But we really don't try to revolve them out or change them that often. Um, we like consistency um, so that we know, you know, we can make some predictions as to what we're growing and how to do the, the integrated pest management and, you know, pairing it up. What room are we growing it and what other plants are we growing it with? And plants have the ability to talk to one another and communicate. And you want to keep that consistency as much as you can. We want to meet consumer demand and we want to bring in new strains. But we're very, very judicious about how we go through that cycle and, and when we're ready to do that. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting uh, how you're able to keep them from cross-pollinating. Like, you, I've heard a lot about, I've done a lot of research on, on the genetically modified crops, and I'm not an advocate of, of those, uh, corn and soy and cotton and so on. But, you know, I've read a lot about um, organic farmers neighboring uh, big, big agricultural grows and just the mere fact that a bee will be, you know, taking pollen from one crop and, you know, go over to another person's property and pollinate that crop and that crop winds up with the DNA of the genetically modified version. Is it the same kind of thing with cannabis or is that... Not when you're growing indoors, you know, we have, that's another reason that our indoor environment and a controlled environment is so important. Right. Um, we don't, you know, we don't have pollinators um, flying around in our space. We also don't have um, drift from somebody using, you know, down the road, a, a banned substance or a toxic pesticide that's going to end up on ours. Uh, residually. So, you know, it's just another reason to the controlled environment, I think, is very important for cannabis. You know, perhaps with hemp and some of these, um, you know, depending on what you're growing for, I could see where outdoor is a benefit. But I think that it poses a new challenge. Yeah, I, I imagine. I mean, these are all things that I've wondered over the, over the last few years. And 
So I'm really happy to be learning from you. There's, there's just so much to it. It's yeah, mind-boggling. You know, this is a, a, a great chance for me to, to plug the Cannabis Sustainability Symposium. Um, you know, if people are interested in cannabis sustainability and you know, they really want to see, uh, you know, some of the innovation that's going on and talk to people who are either, you know, manufacturing products or, or working in sustainable cannabis cultivation environments, I would strongly encourage them to come out in Colorado in October 17th and 18th this year. We're going to have that symposium. We have a lot of speakers you know, talking about um, different aspects of cultivation and sustainability and what they can do with waste, with lighting, with water, um, and and with HVAC systems, um, as well as waste. I think we have a really well-rounded program. The sustainability work group is also in the process of um, publishing, and it's due to come out in September of this year, a best practice manual. And again, this is you know, non-regulatory, this is a, um, a resource and education materials that we're putting out so that people can learn about different techniques that they can employ. And they're, um, this is specifically to indoor grows, this first iteration of it. But, you know, we want to be seen as a, as a resource and that other states can follow suit. I know they're doing a lot of uh, progressive um, sustainability work in Oregon and in Washington, and I imagine that California is going to follow suit just from the, you know, the the consumer demand there. So I think that um, now is a good time to get involved. You asked me early in the interview about, you know, what could people be doing and how could they be doing more? And I think it's, you know, we got to keep moving forward. It's about education. They have to educate themselves. They have to be current um, and and relevant. Um, and at this point. A year in cannabis, it's like dog years, whether it comes to regulation or legality or um, legislation or products or concentrates and infusion. I mean, everything is just exploding and as is cultivation standards and techniques. Yeah, and it's, it's actually a good thing. I mean, we've got 80 years to catch up, um, you know, from, from the time that it's been inaccessible to people until now. And it's, it's phenomenal what's happening. Are you by any chance working with uh, Focus, which is the Foundation of Cannabis Unified Standards? No, actually, the Organic Cannabis Association, we're trying to develop our own organic certification standard, and we're in the process of that now, um, and we have some proposed legislation on that here in Colorado. Additionally, we already have a clean cannabis certification that we're using that certifies for pesticide-free products. Right. Well, the, the um, Focus is the acronym for the group, what they're doing is they're, they're collaborating with foreign um, regulate, regulatory bodies and um, in the U.S. to sort of develop standards across the board for all sorts of things. Um, yeah, we've had lots of discussions with them. Yeah, um, that's, that's who I was that. talking about. Okay, familiar. yeah, that's why I was wondering, um, because uh, if you have the book coming out, it'd be probably very useful for them to um, take advantage of your knowledge and resources as well. And I, I actually interviewed um, Leslie Ingleking on this show uh, several months ago, but um, she was right in the throes of um, pulling together a group of individuals who are sort of a master think tank, if you will, to look into every single aspect of the cannabis industry and start pulling best practices from each segment in order to come up with some universal standards. And I don't recall, you know, who they're talking to about organic uh, growing methods and that sort of thing. So it's, it's interesting. So from your point of view, what do you, what would you think would be one of the most important um, bits of information you could con convey to um, policymakers on a federal level about the cannabis movement in general? Um, you know, I think I'd go back to the point that I led with, which is that this really needs to be evaluated as its own industry. We are moving at a, at a speed of our innovation that is unheard of in any other new industry that's come on in the past, you know, couple of hundred years. I mean, the, the, the fact that we're already at a point now with um, lighting and HVAC and these systems, I think we're, are, we're open 
to it. We are we're we're very open to that as a as an industry. And ultimately, you know, not only are the businesses benefiting, but the consumers are going to benefit. And you know, if they want to talk about the safety and the efficacy of cannabis, you know, how do they ignore its cultivation? And how do they ignore the science and the technology that has been going into its in, um, cultivation? And, and as part of that, naturally, sustainability. But, you know, consumers want to know what they're ingesting. They want to know what's in their cannabis. And we want cannabis to be evaluated on its own merits. We don't want there to be bad press because somebody got sick because what they really were ingesting was a pesticide. You know, we, we need to have some way to, to differentiate organic from conventional. Um, and I think that we need a lot of science and research um, behind cannabis right now. But there, there's a lot of reluctance, and I, I know that. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that I hope the current political environment doesn't prohibit um, or, or stall the growth, I should say, because it's really phenomenal what we're learning about cannabis, about the endocannabinoid system, about all the other, you know, economic, social, and um, even political and health benefits of making cannabis accessible to the public. And it's just, I, I'm just in awe every single day when I, I learn about new miracles, I learn about new scientific studies. Um, I see the prosperity that's happening in the states where it's legal and how, you know, it's, it's, not doing any harm. Um, the states that have passed these more liberal laws about cannabis. So I'm, and kudos to you. I mean, it seems like it seems like you've been on a really good path and setting a great example for people who want to get into this industry. In fact, what would you tell people that um, are considering entering the industry, uh, either in the retail side or in the growing side? Um, in general, as advice, uh, prepare to be humbled. Um, no matter what you know about business, uh, the cannabis industry is unlike any other um, in terms of um, the pace of growth and the regulation and compliance. Um, and I think that something else I always share with people is don't be afraid to start at the bottom because if you really have that great of an idea or if you really want to make that change, you are going to be noticed and you're going to work your way up very quickly. There is still a lot of room in this industry for leadership, um, but never be um, afraid to start at the bottom. Yeah, I, I think that seems like sage advice. It definitely seems like sage advice. So, well, I'm, I'm very, um, I, I'm looking forward to hearing how it goes with the sustainability symposium. Tell me again when that is. It's in October, right? Yeah, it's in October. It's October 17th and 18th. It's in Denver, Colorado. And um, it should be, you know, really well received. We had an, an amazing first year last year, and this year we've extended it to a day and a half, and it piggybacks with a management symposium here in the city of Denver. So it's a great event to make your way to. Yeah, and it'll be um, grow growers, retailers. Will it be mainly a business type of con conference, or is it more for like consumer education? You know, I think right now it's really it, it is business to business. There is some consumer education in it, and I think consumers can certainly be enlightened um, at this when they learn about how cultivation happens. But um, I know that primarily the vendors there and uh, some of the attendees are business to business. Right. And how how often do you get involved um, politically in in Colorado? Um, I mean, the work group is it a political sort of organization? So it's put together by the city and county of Denver's Department of Environmental Health. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I guess that you could say that. And and I am very active. I participate in industry organizations. I try to keep, you know, um, just my finger on the pulse of any new legislation that's coming through. Um, I'm very um, in tune with what's happening with legislation and as it partakes or as it you know translates to rulemaking how that's going to affect us and our store um, and then I do a lot of consumer advocacy through my work with Organic Cannabis Association again I, I really feel like 
you know, consumers need to know that what they're learning about cannabis can come from a trusted resource and can come from a non-bias, just educating themselves the same exact way they do about their food they would to their cannabis. Yeah, I think I think that's really smart. And, you know, because there is a lot of misinformation that is out there and available to consumers and... I mean, yeah. it, it's a it's an important aspect of the business. I would think you know, staying, um, keeping consumers completely informed about consumers drive the market. They yeah. drove the market in grocery stores. Look at McDonald's and the changes they've made to their menus in the past ten years. That's coming from consumers. It's not coming from regulation and not coming from their own industry. If consumers are aware and if the education they're getting is not being fed to them from the people trying to sell them the products then they are going to be able to demand a better product overall. And it's going to just improve the state of the cannabis industry if they do that as it relates to dispensaries and marijuana, whether it's medical or adult use. Yeah. And on the dispensary level, uh, how, how do you handle the questions that come in from, from consumers about um, strains and that sort of thing? Because there are a lot of people who, who still have never... Um, ventured into medical cannabis to treat whatever ails them. And, uh, you know, I, I hear from people around here that, you know, often patients will, are feeling a bit intimidated because they don't really know what they're getting into. They go, they get certified, they know that cannabis can help them. But what do you tell new consumers when they walk in the door? Well, I think this is really a testament to how we treat our sales associates. We don't call them bud tenders. Um, we call them sales associates because I think it really, bud tender, it almost diminishes the level of education <laughs> yeah. that we expect them to the have euphemism. in all aspects of marijuana. I mean, they're selling flour, they're selling topicals, edibles, drinks, and any number of concentrates. I can barely keep up with the amount of concentrates that we're selling and, and the amount of information that they're expected to impart. You know, we, we choose to, um, to very well compensate our sales associates um, and to provide them with insurance um, as a, at least a stipend for that as best we can. We want this to be a solid uh, workplace for them where they feel like they can really hone in on their own education as it relates to cannabis. Uh, you know, they are, they are the, the bridge between a first-time user and the experience that that person is going to have with cannabis, they need to listen and they need to ask the right questions. And, mm. you know, then formulate a suggestion. And again, it's just a suggestion based on their own anecdotal experience in their years of working with cannabis. We are, we are you know, giving them an incredible amount of responsibility when they're talking to our clients. And I think that our clients recognize that. Um, you know, we try to support what it is that the client is seeking and not just the recommendation that some bud tender might make for this customer. You know, that's why as sales associates, they really have to hear and listen to what the client's needs are and then try to meet those needs. I'd always um, rather the client come back wanting more wanting something stronger or different, ready to take a leap into something that they're a little bit more timid about than us, if you will, over-prescribe or over-suggest to them something that scares them off. Yeah. Um, and I think as far as, you know, a, a connoisseur walking through our door, well, every single one of our sales team, they're just, you know, they, they know so much that they can, you know, um, have an enlightened conversation and go really deep into all the different terpene profiles and cannabinoid profiles while at this you know same time or moments before just very basically describing sativa indica hybrids uh, you know testing profiles and and um, to the to a novice consumer right so it's a real testament to our staff yeah well in a way they have to be they have to be knowledgeable enough to serve almost as pharmacists in. Yes, yeah, and and I imagine and yet they're this. underutilized and they're undereducated yeah. and and their lack of training and until the demand from the consumer is I want them to have this you know breadth of information available to me, 
um, you know, the consumers are going to drive just how much dispensaries are investing in their team. I imagine, and um, maybe you'll agree, I don't know, but I imagine that down the road, um, the sales associate role will ultimately be filled by uh, medical professionals who who get training in the endocannabinoid system and I mean it you know there there will be two sides of it obviously there's the adult use where it, people aren't coming in strictly for medical use but um, then the medical side where people come in and they say oh you know I was just diagnosed with such and such <laughs> um, and I my friend got over it because of you know, uh, medical marijuana, what should I take? And then, you know, the sales associate is sort of forced into this, you know, fine line of where they're going to be sort of giving medical advice or not. And, and I don't know, do you think that it's going to start going in that direction or, you know, certainly we're going to draw some, some information from the medical field. Absolutely. Yeah. And perhaps medical, you know, medically trained uh, people will start working more and more in this industry as that becomes normalized. But I have to, to correct you on something, which is as when we went a, to adult use, 21 and over, we actually saw an increase in the amount of medical patients that we were seeing because they can come here from out of state and they might be a medical patient or they choose not to register in the registry. A lot of people don't like the... Um, you know, they prefer the anonymity of not having to register. Yes. They prefer the anonymity of not having to have that specific medical card, yet they still have the ailment, and they still have whatever it might be, the diagnosis that is driving them to a cannabis facility. We find more people are interested in the fact that we're clean cannabis. They know it's safe. They know it's pesticide-free. You know, we make all of our own edibles and concentrates from our own trim because we only trust our trim and I think they they latch on to that so whether or not they're coming to us from in state or out of state or if they're seeking medical um, feedback we, we still see just a tremendous amount of medical patients right right so how, how do they um, how do the sales associates um, differentiate from being ad- like medical advisors in that role then you know it's it's, I think they treat every customer with that level of responsibility. Right. Um, that's just how they have to do it as, a, as an umbrella. You know, uh, of course, we, we always need to know that what we're recommending is going to alter um, someone's state. And so why would you not approach it from the how are you using it? What are you using it for? What do you typically like? What is your threshold with other medications or with with alcohol? Something to know, you know, a a heavy versus light user, micro doses versus you've done this, you know, before and you're a seasoned user. I think they really have to approach everybody with it, uh, you know, equally in that. Yeah, yeah. So we've got... um you know, just several minutes left here before we have to wrap things up. And it's, <laughs> it always goes by way too quickly for my taste. I could go on for hours hearing what you have to say. But um, I'd like to just uh, get some final thoughts from you about the future of sustainability um, or the future of cannabis as it relates to sustainability and you know, sustainability on so many other levels besides just environmental, but, you know, as, as an industry as a whole, um, overarching, what are your thoughts? You know, again, I think that if, if I were speaking only to my Colorado representatives and Colorado legislators and just looking at it in that, um, you know, under, under that filter, um, I feel very confident that we're really making a super positive impact in our state. We are driving a tremendous amount of tax dollars with over a billion dollars in sales. Um, what our state is being has been able to do with that revenue, I think, is really important. How our you know opioid addictions have decreased, how our DUI um, uh, rates have have dropped, how our teen use has been under control because of this regulated market. I think that it's a very positive impact and it is a sustainable industry. I think the initial shockwaves of legalization in Colorado have 
sort of subsided and we are feeling that bit of normalization um, in it. And, and that's when, now that we've sort of stabilized, we can dig into sustainability and becoming more green and being more responsible in our communities and having better community impact. I think, you know, that's when we can start dealing with those. Unfortunately, we are in a position to where there is a larger administration and we sort of kind of always have to be peeking over our shoulder at what's happening there. But, you know, we need to remember that more than 60% of this country voted in favor of marijuana um, in the last election. And I don't think the administration can totally ignore that. Anyway, well, I am, I'm really looking forward to, you know, following um, more about this and more about what you're doing. And, you know, please feel free to um, share with us at the Cannabis Reporter anything that, any news that you think might be relevant to nationwide audiences, not just the local area. Because, um, you know, we do have a, a broad audience um, who, of people who are beginning to follow what's going on in Colorado. And, yeah. Well, anyway, um, I would like to just say thank you so much uh, you. for joining us. That is Amy Anderley, and we really appreciate her insights and information today. If you'd like to learn more about what she's doing and other compelling topics, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click on today's episode, and I will have a link to her website and, um, you know, just fill you in on the event and that sort of thing. I'd also like to say thank you so much to Dr. Brian Donner for a Medical Marijuana Minute update. Thanks to our producer, Wendy West, and the team at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine. I'd also like to express our gratitude to our sponsors at Hemp Meds. We couldn't do this without you. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. Tune in again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, your host, and until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is always.